When I was a little girl, I was afraid of the dark. Each night for a short season of my childhood, I would flip off the light switch, then make a run for it and hurdle myself onto my bed, taking care to launch myself a good foot from that bed so the monsters underneath who would try to grab my foot if it was too close, I would avoid. I'm a grown woman now and I'll admit I'm still afraid of the dark. Not in a literal sense, although a recent visit this summer to Wind Cave National Park tested that when the guide had us turn off our cell phones for just a moment. But I am sometimes afraid or discouraged by the darkness, metaphorically speaking, that I see around me. We sometimes speak of ourselves or our loved ones as being in a dark place. And by that we mean they feel discouraged or we feel hopeless, we've lost our way. Maybe it's because of recent conversations I've had with people living in their own personal darkness, a loved one's ill health or recent death, a conflict that doesn't seem to get resolved, an unfulfilled longing. Or maybe it's because I listen to the news regularly, which, whether national or global, can feel pretty dark at times. But I find myself feeling the weight of that darkness right now. Now I know it's Christmas. I know if this consumer society would have its way with me, I would be focusing on the magic of the season or the importance of giving just the right gifts to those I love. And of course, do not worry about me. I am enjoying those things in many ways. There is a lot I love about this time of year. I love the music, the smells, the decorating, the baking, and the generous spirit gift-giving can elicit. But I also know, as do you if you're honest, that those sentimental and nostalgic feelings do not tend to last after the decorations are put away or the credit card bill arrives in January. We need something deeper, something more permanent. This intuitive sense we have is shown statistically as well. Studies show an increase in anxiety and depression, particularly among young people. A recent study from just this week revealed that alcohol use, particularly among middle-aged people, and specifically among women, has skyrocketed in the last 10 years. There are more deaths now in this country due to alcohol than due to opioids. Clearly, our world is longing for more than holiday cheer. And as I discovered in preparing for today, indeed, it can have it. Today, we come to the second week of our Advent series, Journey to Bethlehem, where we're taking a chronological look at the birth of Jesus. Our focus is on Zachariah and Elizabeth, who miraculously become pregnant with a baby six months before their niece Mary becomes pregnant with baby Jesus. Their son grows up to become John the Baptist, known for baptizing many people who chose to follow God in his ways and also known for his poor hygiene and rare diet consisting of locusts and honey. It's true. You can look it up. We'll start with Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, and then we'll skip over to verses 57 and 59. Now, I've decided this is such a well-crafted story with a clear point at the end that I'm going to spend the majority of this message reading a few verses at a time, 
making some comments along the way to give some context, and then offer a very brief conclusion afterwards. My hope is that we will be able to put ourselves in the story, and that as a result, some light might shine in our own darkness. Are you with me? From Luke chapter one. In the time of King Herod of Judea, we know the years of his reign incidentally, which is why we can date Jesus' birth to around 6 BC. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiha. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So, they come from good lineage. Abiha, according to 1 Chronicles 24.10, was a priestly family from the time of King David, and Aaron, as you may recall, was the first high priest, Moses' brother. But they don't just come from good stock. They're good people. Verse six, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now the narrator's point isn't that they're perfect, but rather that they are sincerely seeking to obey God. But there's a problem. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. A hopeless situation is getting more and more hopeless by the years. Infertility, then as it is now, is deeply painful. Sadly, many in our community know that deep pain of wanting something more than anything else in the world, a good God-given desire, and you cannot make it happen. And we cannot make it happen for you, though we would like to and though we pray in that vein. We as a community grieve with you and for you. In addition to this pain, childlessness in the first century produced other challenges too. Financial, there were no societal safety nets except through offspring, as well as social stigmas. This was often equated as God's judgment for wrongdoing. But while brief, this couple's description couldn't be any clearer. Even people who are following God sincerely and doing everything right may still face hardship. Suffering is not always the result of bad behavior and we dare not insinuate that to others. These verses are short, but there's a lot behind them. There's pain, there's deep sadness, there's confusion, there's questioning, and it is into this situation that the story of Jesus' birth begins. Once, when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the pre-assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, there were about 18,000 priests in Israel at this time, broken down into 24 different divisions, so each, and each served about two weeks out of the year. Essentially, that is one priest out of every 750 would be chosen twice a year for this honored role, described in Exodus 30, verses 7 to 8. Most priests were never chosen to do this, so there's a bit of providence in the fact that Zechariah is. The job itself was relatively straightforward. You go into the temple, light the incense, shovel on some fresh coals, say your prayer, and get out. Upon exiting, the priest would say a word of blessing to the people waiting outside. 
But Zechariah is delayed in a most unusual way. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Talk about an unusual day at work. Zachariah is almost comically startled by the presence of this angel. But the angel promises that he and his wife will have a son and not just any son, but one who apparently will be a gift not only to them but also to all his people. John's role is essentially to facilitate a national revival, to help the people turn back to God. Now, that's quite a responsibility, even from our perspective. But it's important to see that verses 16 to 17 are a direct quote from an Old Testament prophecy in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6, and indeed are the very last words of the Old Testament penned some 400 years before. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. The Jewish people believed that the prophet Elijah would return. And when he did, he would be a sign that God himself would return to set their world right, to set them free from the oppressive government that ruled over them, of which Herod is a part. The angel is telling Zechariah, a Jewish priest as familiar with Malachi's words as we are with the ABCs, that his son will serve in the role like that of Elijah, whose presence will initiate the coming of God to earth to save his people. When we know that, it begs the question, just what was Zechariah praying for? that day in the temple. Was he praying for a son? Was he on the one day of his life when he was chosen among all the priests to offer prayers on behalf of his people slipping in his own personal request before the Almighty? Or would that have been too sacrilegious? Was he instead, as his position of priest entailed, praying the very prophecies Devin shared with us last week, prophecies like Malachi 4 or Isaiah 6 to 9, asking God to come and set his people free? We don't know exactly. It's possible he was praying for salvation for his people and that God, who knows our unspoken thoughts, also knew of his desire for a son. Or perhaps, as I suspect, God, in his mysterious way, is able to answer prayers for both the individual and for all of humanity at the same time. See, God is able to answer the prayer beneath the prayer. 
On the surface, Zechariah longs for a son, and that is a very legitimate longing. But even more than that, Zechariah yearns for salvation, freedom from all that is dark and evil and wrong in this world. I mean, even if he is granted a son, what about others whom he loves who are childless? What about others who are experiencing a different kind of suffering in this world? How might they have hope too? The angel declares that John's birth will be a gift not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to the entire nation of Israel, indeed to all of humanity as well. No wonder his response in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's not just that Zachariah couldn't believe he and Elizabeth could have a baby. The prayer for a son was the surface prayer. The prayer beneath the prayer had always been for 400 some years before him, God, come to our rescue, save us. And you can't blame him for not believing the angel's words. After you've prayed for something for a long time and it doesn't seem to be answered, you start to lose hope. You start to wonder if God even hears your prayers. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. You want a sign, Zachariah? Gabriel says, fine, I'll give you a sign, just not the kind you were looking for. And indeed, that is what happens. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Yeah, try describing that incident in charades or gestures. I mean, like, when this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among his people see her pain even there. Skipping down to verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And the best theme for any baby shower ever, verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared in her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one in your family among your relatives with that name. Then they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. Children in that day were generally named after their father or grandfather. Moreover, as you might expect in a patriarchal society, this decision was made by the father alone. But with Zachariah unable to speak these last nine or possibly 10 months, including travel, Elizabeth tries to declare the baby's name. Presumably, Zachariah has communicated in writing with Elizabeth all that the angel told him. But mom's words won't suffice. 
So after a second comical scene of charades in verse 62, Zechariah steps in. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. These four words astonish everyone in the room, not only because John is not a family name, but also because it unleashes Zachariah's voice. The tongue that was silent for so long finally bursts into praise. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now I want to linger here for a moment on Zachariah's silent sentence because I think it's a strong metaphor for what is happening here with John the Baptist's birth. We may chuckle at the image of Zachariah playing charades, but being able to not speak, being unable to speak is no laughing matter. Even the most introverted or quiet among us would see that as quite a sentence. Our voice is power, influence, connection. Without it, we cannot register our thoughts on matters others are, are bantering about or share our deepest emotions with those closest to us. Imagine being that way for nine plus months, during which time your wife becomes pregnant. Imagine when she first feels the baby kick, Zachariah, I felt the baby move. Somehow it's just not the same when he has to run over and grab his writing tablet and write, wonderful. It feels muted, pun intended. And unlike us today, Zachariah had little to distract him from his pain, from his current circumstances. No Fortnite, no Twitter feeds, no binge watching of Netflix, just a lot of time to think. I imagine Zachariah sitting in silence, saying his prayers or reading his sacred text as priests would, thinking about the angel's words, thinking about how at least part of the prophecy had come true. He wasn't able to speak. So maybe, just maybe, the other part would come true too. Maybe after hundreds of years of waiting, God had finally chosen to answer their prayers. Maybe after 400 years of silence in Israel's history, it will finally be broken. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. The prayer beneath the prayer, a gift for you and Elizabeth, but also for your people, yea, for the whole world. And that is precisely what Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, testifies to, staring into the eyes of his eight-day-old son. Like a geyser, his prophecy bursts forth in verses 67 to 79, putting an exclamation point on the story Luke has been telling us. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. Zechariah can see what God is doing through this miraculous birth. And it is summarized. Praise be to God because he has come to his people and redeemed them. The wait is over. The silence is broken. God has heard your cries. This birth signals another birth, which although in the sequence of time come later, it is actually of greater significance than this birth. Through that birth, God himself is going to come to his people and save them. Zechariah is joyful, all right, but not just because of his little baby, long awaited though he was. He's joyful about another baby to be born. One, as verse 69 says, not from the line of Aaron, but from the house of David. And his coming will bring not political freedom, but spiritual. He will enable people to serve God without fear and in the right way, verse 74 and 75. He will forgive sins, verse 77. He will guide and direct people in the way of peace, verse 79. And this child's coming marks not the beginning of God's saving purposes in humanity, but rather the culmination of it. This is what all the priests and prophets years ago had anticipated, verse 70. This birth is God making good on his promise and covenant to Abraham and Zechariah's ancestors, verse 72 to 73. It's not plain to us because we haven't been steeped in Jewish tradition, but if you heard Devin last week talk about Isaiah 6 to 9, you might have caught the reference in verses 78 to 79 here. It is a direct reference to Isaiah 9 to the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Zachariah's message through the Spirit that day and by extension to us is that there is hope in this life. A light has come. Thanks be to God. Now let me be clear. I am not saying that every one of your or my prayers for job or health or child will be answered in the way we want. Jesus warns us, in this world, you will have many troubles. We cannot presume to know God's ways, and we dare not offer false hope to others when we can't. And yet, along with the angel, because of what John's birth sets into motion, namely the coming of Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, we can indeed affirm to ourselves, to one another, and to this dark world, do not be afraid, your prayer has been heard. 
our deepest longing, what we need most, the prayer beneath the prayer we utter has been heard. And more importantly, it has been met in Christ's coming. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Why? Because even after this world has done all it can to us, this is not the end. The Christian tradition affirms that this little baby Jesus grows up, lives a sinless life, and offers his life in exchange for ours. He takes on death itself, dealing the final blow. Oh, it was silent from Good Friday through that first Easter morn, but oh, how the song burst forth when by the power of God, life returns to Jesus' body and he gets up, overcoming once and for all the power of sin and death. Oh, I know, I know, it doesn't always seem that way. Sometimes it is as dark as a cave down here with only faint glimmers of light. Sometimes we, the church, fail to shine our own light, stuck in sickness and sin. But each year, as we celebrate Advent, we not only look back at Jesus' first coming as a baby in a manger, but we also look forward to Jesus' second and final coming as rightful king on his throne when all that he longs for will be the reality, where justice will prevail where mercy will reign, where love is the only currency accepted, where even death will die. Listen to how the Bible describes that day from Revelation 21. God's dwelling place is now among the people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the lamb, that is Jesus, is its lamp. Or as John 1 says it, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do not be afraid. Your prayer, your deepest longing, the prayer beneath the prayer has been heard. And not only heard, it has been met in the birth of Jesus, the light of the world. So no matter how dark it seems at times, the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome it. Praise be to God, he has come to his people. This Advent, let us burst forth and join Zachariah's song, declaring to those living in a land of darkness that a light has dawned. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, who inspired Zachariah, who inspired Luke to record these words, who is with us now, do your work. We are all in different places, varying degrees of darkness and light in our personal lives. Only you can speak the hope that we need to hear, the true hope, not some false security, the prayer beneath the prayer. Minister to your children now, we ask, that we may leave here filled with hope to be people of hope, blessings, lights, to this dark world that you so love. And we bless you and thank you. We join Zachariah's song, Praise Be 
only to you, you have come, you have redeemed. Through Jesus, amen.